Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Conflict in the contemporary world takes place on multiple levels beyond conventional military domains in so-called gray zones, where misinformation can be as deadly and effective a weapon as any tank or missile. Students at the Army War College have long been taught to consider the information instrument of military power as part of the DIME concept, along with diplomatic, military, and economic instruments. Now more than ever, though, strategic leaders must learn how to recognize and manage threats from misinformation as they develop a more comprehensive conception of national security. Our guests today have worked on this domain with special attention paid to current conflicts in Eastern Europe and the Baltic region, where misinformation has been an important part of Russian regional strategy, and have also considered how what is happening along NATO's eastern frontier can and has had an impact on us here at home. So I'd like to introduce our three guests, Professor Bert Tussing, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Cavanaugh, and Lieutenant Colonel uh, Yahara Frankie Matyshek. So uh, Professor Bert Tussing is Director of the Homeland Defense and Security Issues Group at the U.S. Army War College's Center for Strategic Leadership. He joined CSL in October 1999, following nearly 25 years in the United States Marine Corps. He is a distinguished graduate of both the Marine Corps Command and Staff College and the Naval War College, and holds master's degrees in national security strategy and military strategic studies. In May of 2014, he was awarded an honorary doctorate in humane letters by Northwestern State University in recognition of his work in homeland security, homeland defense, and educational initiatives surrounding those topics. Lieutenant Colonel Matt Cavanaugh, PhD, is an active duty U.S. Army strategist with experience in 11 countries and assignments ranging from Iraq to the Pentagon and Korea to New Zealand. He serves as professor of practice with the Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies and is a co-founder of and a senior fellow with the Modern War Institute at West Point. Matt earned his master's in strategic studies at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand, and his PhD in international relations under professors Colin Gray and Beatrice Heuser at the University of Reading in the UK. Lieutenant Colonel Frankie Matyshek, PhD, is an active duty U.S. Air Force senior pilot serving as an associate professor in the Department of Military and Strategic Studies and as the research director for the Strategy and Warfare Center at the United States Air Force Academy. He has over 3,000 hours of flight time with more than 1,300 combat hours and has published over 60 articles in peer-reviewed journals and policy-relevant outlets on the topics of modern warfare strategy and security force assistance. Frankie earned his PhD in political science at Northwestern University, and his forthcoming book, Old and New Battle Spaces, describes how sociopolitical information warfare is leading to the weaponization of everything in society as every citizen becomes a combatant. Welcome to A Better Peace, gentlemen. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. 
So Bert, I want to come to you first and I want to ask you what brought you into working with Matt and Frankie? Well, the Homeland Defense Institute, which uh, Matt and Frankie are, are key elements of, is, is a brand new organization. I mean, it just stood up in April of this year. It, it came about to 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 fill a a, a desperate need, if you will, uh, to a, to another academic focus on what's going on in Homeland Defense, Homeland Security, uh, Defense Board of Civil Authorities, and and things of that nature. No surprise that Northcom stood this thing up. Uh, no surprise either that it was able to to locate itself at the United States Air Force Academy. As soon as it stood up, uh, frankly, I was looking for an opportunity to to link with them, and uh, they didn't shut the door in my face on, on, on my first chance. And um, I'm looking for, and we've already begun. I'm happy to say, a, a good, solid, and sustainable relationship between the Army War College and HDI. Great. Well, then for Matt and Frankie, so uh, what what have you been working on um, up to now, bringing you into this cooperation with uh, with Bert? Hey, Ron, this is Matt. I'll, I'll step in first. Um, you know, I, I was working at NORAD, Northcom, and we built this partnership, this relationship with the Air Force Academy because we saw what what Bert's seen for quite some time, which is that America's Homeland defense is America's Achilles heel. And if, if we can't defend the homeland fully and properly, uh, you know, you can't shoot a cannon from a canoe. Uh, if you don't have a firm foundation and a firm base, uh, you can't project power all over the globe. And that's not just uh, propaganda. Frankly, you can look around the world and you can, you can spin the globe and see it happening all over. The Iranians hitting Saudi oil fields, knocking down Saudi oil production for months at half of their uh, half of their production levels. Um, the Russians attacking the Ukrainian electrical grid, um, the Chinese, the largest uh, hack in human history on the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. Uh, they have all of our social security numbers. Um, and then lastly, Kim Jong-un, you know, with roughly the same gross domestic product as the city of Colorado Springs, uh, he's able to threaten strategic strikes directly on America's homeland. So, you know, we know that war has changed. What's most valuable is now most vulnerable. And it's time to start thinking a little bit differently about how we defend. You know, just as the gunpowder age uh, forced changes in fortifications, uh, we think that some of these new offensive tools ought to uh, shuffle the way that we think about homeland defense. Um, and so, you know, we built this organization to start to look at some of those problems. And one of those uh, key lines of effort, frankly, is looking out across the world to better understand how our adversaries are already hitting homelands. Uh, so we asked Lieutenant Colonel Matasek to uh, lead our research efforts into Eastern Europe to understand how the Russians uh, hit homelands directly there. And that, and that's actually where, uh, and this is Frankie here. Mm -hmm. That's where Matt Kavanaugh brought me on was a lot of my, the research over the last couple of years, which basically led to the book project, old and new battle spaces was essentially looking at the, the Klaus Fitzian Trinity of, you know, when you attack a foreign country, you, you know, you can go after the, you know, the armed forces, you can go after the government or you go after the people. And I started thinking that civil society, uh, was actually a part of that that trinity, but it was so you know unknown uh, to Klaus at the time of his writing. And it sort of made me think about like a lot of the activities we've seen 
from China and Russia going after America and the West has really been about attacking a civil society to uh, cause a division and polarization and basically sort of weaponize the strength of the West in a way that I just don't think was possible in the pre-internet age because the threshold to, to doing this is so cheap now. It's so easy and it's such a low risk thing to do if you're the Chinese and Russians engaging in disinformation and misinformation and even trying to amplify the average American that is engaging in propaganda and other kind of conspiracy theories. And so that's why it was great. We went to the Eastern Europe to basically see these are countries on the front lines, especially with Russia, on how Russian activities in this region are pretty similar to what's going on in America. Mm-hmm. Well, and you raise you raise a, all three of you raise a, a point that I've uh, been struggling with thinking about this. Right, is that the as Frankie you just said, right? The strength of the West, the strength of a free society, is the free exchange of information, and yet. If that information is itself steered in a particular direction, if it's incorrect, but it is shared, you know, how how does one imagine a policy that combats misinformation while also uh, allowing for the free flow of discussions? Right, the, you, we can talk about security, but we certainly don't want to talk about censorship. Well, I'll start off there. Uh, um, one of the problems that I, I think that we have is there's no question. Uh, that both the Russians and the Chinese are deliberately utilizing a strategic communications campaign against the United States in what the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency of the uh, Department of Homeland Security refers to as a combination of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem that we've got is that the traditional counterbalance, if you will, against uh, an adversary's campaign, and this is nothing new, it's just as, as Frankie pointed out, so much more prevalent in the, in the new information environment. The problem is that our traditional balance against that has, has come under attack itself, at least in terms of the trust and confidence of the American people. Uh, the two entities I would suggest to you that represented that balance heretofore has been our government itself and the fourth estate, our media. And, and as you well know, and as, uh, as polls continue to point out, neither one of those is, is overwhelmingly supported in terms of trust and confidence against, uh, by our own citizenry. So I suppose one of the things that we've got to, to do is to reemphasize uh, to all elements of society the attack that we're looking at here, particularly our leadership, because they, they will either lead us or not out of the situation. And, and then in, in the very process, reemphasize the essential uh, component of being forthright and truthful with our own people so that when we say the sky is blue today, nobody's going to come back tomorrow and and screaming, no, it's teal, uh, which is, as you know, the current posture of most of our our folks. True. Well, and- and Hey, Ron, can I- Yeah, go right ahead, Matt, because I was going to ask you, you mentioned about the need to rethink uh, Homeland Security and and connect it to national security. And I'm, I'm curious can to know I, can your I, thinks on that. Yeah. Yeah. Can I uh, follow the time-honored tradition of ducking the host's tough questions and, <laughs> you know, point out that, but, you know, it, because you ask a really difficult, nuanced question about the balance between military and civil, and I respect it. I And I think that it's something that we need to grapple with, but I actually want to sort of uh, get up to 30,000 feet. And I want to point out that in this process, my eyes have opened to what I think is the number one challenge with homeland defense, which is convincing anyone that the homeland 
actually needs to be defended. And, and I want to talk about that in a couple of different ways. Um, historically, in two different, two different avenues of approach. The first is the doomsday clock, right? You know, I mean, it's, it's pilloried and I, it may be hackneyed, but I think it does help give us a measure. When they uh, created the doomsday clock in 1947, they set it at seven minutes to midnight. You know, that's how close we are to doomsday, so to speak, according to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. In 91, it went all the way back to 17 minutes to midnight. Now we're closer to midnight than ever before, 100 seconds to midnight, and it's not because of nuclear weapons, right? We're at, we're at an all, relatively speaking, we're at a, an all-time low for nukes since the height of the Cold War. We're down over 80%. It's this diversity of tools with which adversaries can get after the homeland, frankly. And, you know, I'll, it, I'll, I'll shovel some, uh, some warmth into the historian's heart uh, by raising C. Van Woodward's uh, theory or argument for what he called the era of free security, which is that before World War II, we didn't really need to think about defending North America because we had these three great big oceans and it was so hard for navies to cross them. And there was that moment at the beginning of World War II where we actually did think about it, but it passed so quickly. And we, we moved on to, into uh, another sort of theory of American national security, Harold Rood's, um, you know, the, the idea that we would just establish these distant ramparts. And so, you know, over time, we stacked up uh, relationships with 170 different countries and we built what's what's listed as a 800 different bases overseas we basically built fences around the bad guys well the problem is that the bad guys have figured out how to get around and out of those fences without all the muss and fuss of nuclear weapons you know they can get at populations directly it it really goes to the very basis of of how we think about the infrastructure of national security we've always thought about fighting forward and I'm not saying we scrap the playbook. I'm just saying we need to start thinking about layers and depth, both when it comes to defense and when it comes to deterrence. And yeah, some of that rebalance is going to have to come back to the homeland. So, uh, you know, I, I again, I, I, I don't your, your question is spot on. Um, but I also I think that we need to go back to first principles first uh, before we take on some of these thorny issues. Second. Sure. So, and when you say first principles, and then I'm going to bring, bring you back in here, Bert, but when I say, for, when you say first principles, uh, the idea that we are threatened um, by, when we say we are threatened by the enemy reaching out or the adversary reaching out through information, what kind of information are, uh, what kind of information constitutes a threat? Uh, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> Again, you're, you're, uh, you're crushing it. So, <laughs> For me, uh, it, it, it um, information that provides um, a meaningful strategic advantage to a particular uh, side in a, in a competition or a conflict, I, I would consider that uh, of a level that those of us with short haircuts uh, ought to uh, be concerned with. And, and yes, there's a Venn diagram where that overlaps with law enforcement and with civilian uh, civilian entities and organizations, that's uncomfortable. But look, that's that's where the adversaries are going. You know, the enemy gets a vote. The enemy gets to draw the fight where the enemy wants it. 
And that's one thing that we learned in well on that research trip in late August to Ukraine uh, was that the Russians in particular are willing to widen the conflict in ways that, frankly, I never would have considered into language, into religion, into food, borscht. They're arguing over who, who, who the progenitor of borscht is. Um, these are things that don't pop up in military academies and war colleges here, at least on this side of the fence. So I, I do think that um, if the uh, competitor or the adversary can, can derive a meaningful advantage in those venues, then those are venues that we need to start thinking more seriously about. So yeah, even stuff as low level as that. Okay. Burke, you look like you wanted to jump in on that as well. So please go right ahead. Yeah, one of the things that uh, really led me to uh, uh, to Frankie's study when he, when going to the Baltics is the thing that we've kind of danced around a little bit uh, from from the reverse perspective. Um, the Baltics uh, wake up daily looking down the barrel of of the Russian threat. It is it is constantly with them, and they recognize and have over time uh, become relatively resilient at existence in the midst of an existential threat, right? The problem that we have is one that uh, Matt alluded to here a second ago, trying to convince the American people, trying to convince the American leadership, in spite of uh, our, our strategies, which say to the contrary, that the, that the country really is at threat. And that for us in particular, um, uh, we are fairly convinced that the next time the nation goes to war, war is coming to us. So when that comes, and when we have arrived at a, a situation where uh, the existential threat has now forced us back into a, a reaction, um, it may be too late. So as you know, uh, Ron, we're, we're conducting a, a two-year study here right now, uh, approaching a, a strategy for what we would refer to as national security emergencies by, by the old definition, uh, which, which raises us to that, that tier of destruction beyond anything that, that we have seen in our adult lives within the territorial confines of the United States. But our focus on that is what do we do to convince the people that they need to prepare as opposed to our traditional American response and recovery? Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's really what, what led us back, what led me uh, excitedly to what uh, uh, Matt and, and Frankie have been doing at HDI with, with regard to people who are looking down the, the barrel at an existential threat. What can we do to get the nation involved with the notion that uh, war is not just something uh, that uh, is the military's purview. Mm -hmm. Well, and what I see here, though, and when I think about the peoples of the Baltic republics and uh, and and Poland, right there, right along the border with Russia, is that uh, it's important for a nation, for a society, to have a strong uh, counter narrative uh, to combat misinformation, to have a strong native story that that you can tell, so that you'll be able to tell the difference between what you think you know about yourselves and what somebody else is trying to tell you. And yet uh, the great strength of the United States of America is that we have a bunch of stories we tell about ourselves. And the question yeah. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask it again, Matt, even though it's a tough one is who's going to tell the yeah. story that is somehow going to be the response to the misinformation and who has the credibility and the responsibility to tell that story. You know, we need to find that story. 
uh, I'll put it this way. It, it won't be me, but it'll be um, <laughs> our, hopefully our national leadership. I, I say that um, because one thing that you do learn in uh, studying Eastern Europe and other countries, uh, in particular Taiwan, uh, for example, will be visiting in early 2022. And their Minister of National Defense just announced a reinvigoration of uh, the total defense concept. Because if you don't have all the distance or the dollars or the resources like the United States, you need to really sharpen national resiliency. And part of that is that narrative. Um, and you know, the United States, we've sort of put off these uncomfortable conversations because we have had the distance and the dollars and all the weapons and the tools. Um, but things are a little bit different now. You know, um, we're uh, uh, General Casey, the former chief of staff of the army, used to talk about the era of persistent conflict. We're now, I think, in an era of persistent vulnerability. And so that uh, same sense that you get in some of those smaller countries that practice total defense, like Switzerland and Sweden and South Korea and Singapore, mm -hmm. you know, some of the aspects that they've adopted, I think we could learn from them, frankly. Uh, so I would, I would hope that uh, national leadership feels that this is something that's important enough to focus on. Because, I mean, uh, it's, it's one of the oldest ideas, one of the oldest speeches that Lincoln ever gave in the late 1830s, that the, that the United States would, would never die from external threats, but, but from suicide, from internal fracture. Right. Yes, that an, that an, an adversary could never take a drink from the Ohio. Um, that's right. Without the, uh, that's, uh, I guess that's what that is. Is, uh, is that his Lyceum speech in the 1830s? I have to go back and look that I up. think it was 1837 or 38, but that's yes. Right. Well, listeners, listeners are welcome to uh, send email at warroom at armywarcollege.edu to uh, correct us on that. But this, but, but then we're back to that, that issue. So there's a, there's a strategic issue. Uh, sort of, do we have the appropriate structures? Do we have, you know, when you think about this in dealing with any sort of threat, right? Do you have the equipment to do it? Do you have the doctrine to do it? Do you have the the, yeah. the ideas to do it? Um, and I guess you have to identify what different uh, challenges are. And Bert, you mentioned the idea of planning for a national, for a national crisis, right? If a crisis emerges, if it's possible for an adversary to, to throw the enemy rear into, um, into disarray, by spreading misinformation. Like, I don't know, let's say there was a, uh, a pandemic and it was possible to spread information to convince people who should be uh, unified in fighting the pandemic that they would rather argue with each other about their vaccines than do what's necessary to fight the pandemic. Um, how optimistic are you that the United States would be able to respond appropriately to such misinformation? Well, at, at this very moment, uh, one, one would be uh, um, somewhat suspect and having a great deal of uh, optimism over it. However, we have had, we have th had things that, that, that brought us together. And, and, and like you, Ron, I would have thought that, uh, I've, I have frequently said that a, a genuinely um, catastrophic event, catastrophic incident, by, by our own definitions, uh, would would force us together, but if the response to the COVID crisis is indicative, uh, then I think I may have been overly optimistic, and I'm seldom accused of that. Um, 
It, 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 it has got to begin, and at the end of the day, it's, it's got to begin with, with leadership that is willing to say, okay, um, the sorts of things that have been tearing our people apart, uh, the sorts of things that we have been deliberately exploiting in our own political process cannot stand. Uh, because what we're talking about here is the end of the republic as we know it, if we continue down the path that we're talking about here. Um, and this is this is not where I, I think we intended to take this conversation at all, uh, but it's something I think we need to to think about. The um, the the only uh, difference that I would have with with some of the things that uh, that Matt has said, for instance, is that we have traditionally responded. And we're able to respond well. And by traditional, I mean within your and my lifetime, mm-hmm. because the crises that we've been facing most of all have been a series of emergencies, disasters, even major disasters by our own definition, uh, that we have been able to to face because we've had the resources to do it. As 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 Matt suggested in in his comment there, resources that other countries don't have. But when you start to envision the the penultimate man-made catastrophic event, and that is war, coming to the territorial confines of the United States, I would suggest to you that over time, even we in all richness and and, and all of the blessings that we have uh, seen bestowed on this country, we will not have enough to meet all requirements everywhere. And at that time, we're going to be called upon to prioritize and sometimes making some really harsh decisions uh, to to deal with the issues at at a very, if you will, centralized approach, which is an anathema uh, for for most of the American people. So we've got to somehow rise above ourselves and and rise above what we have seen to be uh, the the, uh, quickest tendency to ask what's in it for me and, and to assume that every time that I am not the immediate recipient of whatever the uh, requirements are, uh, then I am being um, deliberately ignored and and put aside. Well, and we've talked a lot about uh, we've we've talked uh, in the past, right? People have emphasized resilience as important, right? So you wait till something happens and you can respond, um, but being ready to keep it from happening—that's um, obviously a very heavy lift. Because it, it requires people to make sacrifices in advance of a conflict, and that requires, let's say, a successful information strategy that encourages people to understand why it's necessary to make those sacrifices. And so, Matt, I'll go back to you on that in response to what yeah. Bert was talking about. What is what does that kind of a strategy look like? Well, it starts from the very top. I mean, it starts from political leadership because it's got to encompass so much more just as war is about much more than warfare, um, a national narrative is so much more than just a bunch of guys in camo. Um, so I want to lean into what the stakes are, frankly, you know, to, to, to failing to develop that national narrative, which, which others in the past have taken a poke at, but we need a new one clearly, um, because it's the glue of national resilience. You know, uh, the oldest technology in humanity is is storytelling. And if we don't find a story that we can all agree on, um, we've got some real challenges. Andrew Kropinovich has written that the decline of deterrence is the greatest threat 
Um, I, I double down on that. Um, and if, if we don't get our story straight, if we, we can't uh, come to common ground in some way, we're going to see a breach in deterrence and in defense. And there's good reasons to see that why that may happen. Um, it's not just the bulletin and the atomic scientists that think we're closest to doomsday. Um, classic models of deterrence, uh, you know, by punishment or denial, uh, through threat of pain or failure, just don't seem to work all that well nowadays. It, you know, at one point, we it was relatively simple and straightforward. We set one big red line for one big red adversary. And it's almost as if we've taken a scissors and cut that red line and we've fractured it and, and made a whole bunch of little small red lines that we've set and we don't know exactly how to, to place them anymore. You know, the United States in particular, we've lowered the bar on what we've sought to deter. So think about the chemical weapons attack, Assad in Syria or potential human rights abuses in Libya, you know, both noble prospects, you know, reasonable, right? But but we've lowered that bar from mutually assured destruction. And we've set a wider perimeter on what we're looking to deter attacks against. So I, I not just the colonial pipeline hack, but think back to even the attack, the North Korean hack on Sony Pictures. You know, what are the aspects of private industry that we're looking to deter nation state attacks upon? And then beyond that, um, we're even talking about cross-domain response, right? It's not just nuke for nuke, tat for tat. You know, now we're we're looking into a bigger bag of tricks. And so I um, I think there's lots of reasons to be a little bit concerned that deterrence may fail, that defenses may not cover everything, and that makes your question about the new national narrative all the more important because the only thing that's left is resilience. And if we can't cohere, then we won't be resilient. Right. Well, and uh, as as we as we come to the end, close to the end of this conversation, right? These are obviously very big questions to struggle with. And the thing that I'm uh, especially sort of wrestling with here is this idea of when you when you mentioned the cross domain responses, right? Is that you 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 listed a series of of actions: the colonial pipeline hack, the OPM hack. Um, uh, even when we when we speak theoretically, right, and, and a, a, say a cyber attack that paralyzed part of the economy, at what point can, should, might, I'm thinking about different verbs I can come up with, uh, a, a uh, American leadership decide to respond, you know, you can respond within that domain, right? You can say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll launch a cyber attack that does this, that, or the other thing. But the first side that decides to respond to a cyber attack with a kinetic attack is going to be accused of unnecessarily escalating a crisis. And yet, is it possible to deter cyber with cyber? Um, or is it necessary to have a plan uh, and, a, and a willingness to respond outside of that domain? And how do we and how do we prepare? How would one prepare the American public for that? Right? They stole our social security numbers. We're going to attack an airbase. Just to pick up that—that's a, 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 you know, a little bit provocative. But that's what I'm struggling with. Is because if you're talking about how do you deter somebody, right? There is there is scholarship on cyber that says that when it comes right down to it, that most cyber attacks are of limited duration and limited significance, 
they sound really big and that's why and that's one of the reasons why they generally cyber attacks stay below the level of kinetic response because nobody wants to be so the one who goes too far so what how do you plan for that so I'm gonna I'm gonna drop my cards and say that for one I'm actually sort of a cyber skeptic. I I do Bring not it. see the cyber Pearl Harbor. I have yet to see a border change mm-hmm. by virtue of a cyber attack. I think you still need to do things in the real physical space. Um, so I I, I want to put that card on the table. That's my my bias, frankly. But I would I would suggest that we need to litigate and have a conversation about like I was saying. Um, all those little red lines, and and I, I I see it as many different levels and layers of red lines that we set for each individual adversary, a tailored and tiered series of deterrent actions, by virtue of the fact that I I, I imagine many of them will fail over time, um, and so I think we need to have that conversation as to when to pull the trigger on response. I think of it as simple as what jeopardizes the national strategic foundation. And that's, that's, you know, that, that's some hard choices about particular things that we've become accustomed to in private life. For example, and, you know, a hack on uh, a part of Hollywood that people particularly like, or a hack that even shuts down some aspects of Amazon's business you know, uh, you know, that that's tied to so many Americans, you know, those are, those are questionable, you know, you know, some stuff is, uh, not at the heart of the national strategic foundation, but there are some attacks on our infrastructure, like for example, uh, the flow of fuel on the East coast that might jeopardize our ability not only to operate on a day-to-day basis, but to project power overseas. So I, I do think these are open questions in a way that have that they they haven't been open since 1940. And I, I actually mark it there. Um, so yeah, these are these are big, meaty questions that we need to think about. And and beyond that, you, you know, uh, that's one of the other raison d'etres for a place like the Homeland Defense Institute, because. You know, people people talk about the the how uh, there was this loss in Kremlinologists after the fall of the wall, and then we've had to kind of bring back the study of the Soviet and Russian state. Uh, there was never a group of interest of of research interest in defending home or the continent, continental defense. I mean, it's it just it's never been something we've studied or thought about, and so more than anything, I think we need sharp intellect focused on these soft underbellies and and quickly. So I'm glad you're asking these questions. Well, I'm glad we're having this conversation. So Bert, final thoughts on this? I'm afraid we are, we're just about out of time, and uh, but I want to give you a chance to say something before we go. Well, well Matt has, uh, has done a very nice job of, of tying some things together. Um, I think uh, getting back to your question with, with the cyber and uh, question, though. I think Matt might have uh, answered his own um, challenge when cyber becomes connected to the physical. Uh, what little I know about it, an English lit major from the Citadel, for God's sakes, but what little I know about it, I know there are SCADA systems out there that can turn off the power, that can redirect things, and they can go from 
from a capability to interrupt to a capability to destroy. And so at that point, uh, um, I, I would suggest that that uh, the cyber component of the issue uh, could be enough for us to say no more. And this is the red line. But what Matt really finished with strong there, I think, is the challenge that we have within the territorial confines of the United States of defining those red lines. And when the red lines are identified, leaving no doubt in the adversary's mind that this is the point at which you shall pay and pay very severely. We don't want to do this. But before we let you go beyond the, the hell, death, and destruction that you have heaped upon our soldiers to doing it to our citizenry, to our children, then the cost of, of your actions goes up exponentially. But first, as Matt said right at the very, at the very beginning, first we have to be convinced ourselves that the threat is there. And I'm afraid we're not willing to rise to that to that reality. Right. There's clearly, there's a lot more work to be done, but it's very important that you're doing the work that you are, right? To remind us that homeland security is national security, that these things need to be considered together, that, uh, that in the modern world, threats come in a variety of shapes uh, and smart strategic leaders uh, identify those shapes and are prepared to respond to them uh, when necessary. Uh, gentlemen, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. I'm sorry we had a, a, a few minor technical problems, and I think we, we lost Frankie, but it was a very good conversation. I want to thank you, Bert Tussing. I want to thank you, Matt Kavanaugh. I want to thank you, Frankie Matashek, for joining us today on A Better Peace. And I want to thank all of you for joining us as well. Please uh, let us know what you think about this program and all of our programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment, if you have not already, to subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. And after you have subscribed, because why wouldn't you want to subscribe to A Better Peace? Please take a moment and rate and review this podcast, because that is how more people can find out about us. We are always interested in broadening this community for conversations like the one you have just listened to. And so we look forward to welcoming you again sometime. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.